this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is the president of Virgin Unite, the charitable arm of the Virgin Company. She worked in telecoms for two decades and across six continents before shifting to philanthropy, driven by a wish to put people and the planet at the core of her business. Over her nearly 20 years at Virgin Unite, she's met some of the world's most influential people, including Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, and the scientist who closed the hole in the ozone layer. Her new book, Partnering, Forge the Deep Connections That Make Great Things Happen, is the result of her observations of leaders and changemakers and the deep relationships that made their work possible. She believes meaningful collaboration is the key to effecting change and getting results in our professional and in our personal lives. Jean Olwan, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you, Georgina. Delighted to be here. It's really lovely to, to reconnect with you. We first met over a decade ago to talk about your work with the elders. And of course, that's something we'll, we'll come on to a little bit later on in the programme. But I wanted to start with, with your sort of origin story, if you like, because actually you're from Boston. Yes, I'm from Boston. And I started in the US working for telecommunication companies and had a journey for many years helping start mobile phone companies around the world. And also had some detours working in the not-for-profit sector. And about now some 20 some years ago, um, started working with Virgin and then started Virgin Unite with Richard some 17 years ago. And so what, what prompted that shift then from, from commercial to, to philanthropic? Yeah, actually, Georgina, it was interesting because I, I took two disruptive detours when I was working, sitting at mobile phone companies. One was to pivot in the U.S. and work in a homeless shelter in Center City, Chicago for teenagers. And then the second one was to work for the National Parks and Wildlife in Australia. And those two detours and then watching us set up mobile phone companies across different countries really got me intrigued about how we start working with the social business and not-for-profit sector and government sector in a radically different way to scale solutions to social problems and environmental problems. So I became deeply passionate about that. So when I was working for Virgin Mobile in Australia, that's when I pivoted to start Unite with Richard because I got so excited about this opportunity to be at this intersection between government, not-for-profit and business. And so, I mean, really fortunate that in Richard Branson, you found this boss who had both the funds, but the will also to try and do good with that. Yeah, I feel so fortunate that I've had the chance to work with Richard, the Branson family and the group. And I think one of the things, Georgina, that's been so beautiful about it is that they've been so willing to take risk and look at systemic change that has to happen, not just treating the symptoms. Um, and to do things like starting the elders of the B team that, again, is a radically different approach uh, to driving change in the world. So I feel very, very fortunate that I had the chance to do that. So Unite is the name of the Virgin Foundation. Tell us a bit more about the, the wider organisation. Yeah, so Virgin Unite, we were really started as this really a little entrepreneurial engine that looks at how we tackle unacceptable issues and unacceptable systems. And we really do that in a number of ways. One is by bringing these extraordinary collectives of leaders together, um, and they again help drive systemic change. The second one is really trying to shout about unacceptable issues in the world, for example, like ending the death penalty. And then we, alongside that, have supported a number of just incredible frontline entrepreneurs all over the world that are driving change. 
And then the last thing is just this beautiful community that's um, been built over the last 20 years that really help leverage far greater change in the world. And that's a mix of philanthropists, business leaders, entrepreneurs, um, and also these extraordinary North Star leaders like Brian Stevenson, who's driving you know, systemic change in the criminal justice system in America. Mm. So let's focus in on the elders now. How did this idea start? So this idea was actually started by Richard Branson and also the musician, Peter Gabriel. And they came at it from slightly different angles. Um, Richard at the time wanted, he was looking at the war in Iraq and trying to get Mandela, Kofi and Tutu and others to go in to stop the war from happening, which obviously didn't happen, but he got excited about it because they were um, excited about the opportunity and the thought of coming together around it. It just wasn't, they didn't have enough time. And then Peter Gabriel had an idea that the world was fast becoming this digital village, basically, with the internet. And this was years ago. This is probably some 20 years ago now. And he felt strongly that we needed a group of global leaders at the helm of that digital village, just like they do at a village level. And so they came together with this idea of the elders and went to Mandela with it and to Grasa Michelle. And Mandela then got really excited about it. And so then you had Mandela and Grasa really founding the elders. And I remember this beautiful moment at uh, sitting in their living room with them. And we had worked with the team with Scylla Elworthy, a whole host of people to put together a long, long list of who could potentially be elders in the world. And this group was really born to look at how they could as a collective tackle human rights issues and also focus on peace in the world and working on behalf of humanity and the planet with no other agendas. And so the starting group Mandela and Grasa chose, and it was obviously people like the wonderful Archbishop Tutu who became the chair, um, Kofi Annan, Mary Robinson, President Carter, uh, and just an extraordinary group of leaders. But President Carter nearly scuppered the whole thing before it began. Yes, there was this amazing uh, moment. It didn't feel very amazing at the time, I have to say, but it was a wonderful learning experience. We had spent probably something like three months putting this extraordinary deck together about what the elders were going to do, what it was going to look like. And we had gathered together this group of philanthropists, entrepreneurs, frontline leaders for two weeks um, on Necker Island to really delve into the idea and look at how we could get it off the ground. And I remember this moment standing um, in this big room presenting the idea and President Carter, many of my heroes, Archbishop Tutu, many of them were sitting in front of me. And I remember seeing President Carter's piercing blue eyes looking at me and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, he's loving this idea. This is brilliant. And then at the end, he stood up and he said, I don't believe in this idea. And literally, I wanted to just melt into the cement. And uh, and I looked at the back of the room and I saw Peter and Richard, just their faces had dropped. And, you know, we scurried into Richard's office, Peter, Richard, myself, and I, I had literally never seen them so quiet before or after. And then something beautiful happened because we, we really had such belief in the idea that we pulled ourselves together. We went back into the room and for the next two weeks, we co-created the idea of the elders with all of these people. So these frontline leaders, President Carter, our Trisha Tutu. And it was such a beautiful learning experience for me, Georgina, because it was at that moment that I realized that the whole magic in it was the co-creation. And what our PowerPoint did coming in was great, but the, what we came up with with these extraordinary leaders was something way better. And, you know, President Carter, when he eventually retired in his 90s from the elders, 
he stood up and he said it was one of the most important things in his life. And I believe it was because he helped us co-create it alongside a bunch of other people. That's wonderful. Tell me about some of the projects then that the elders have been involved in and, and what they've achieved. Yeah, so uh, this extraordinary group of people, and it was interesting because when we first started it, we thought maybe we would get like a couple days of their time the whole year, and it's been the opposite. Um, they have been so deeply committed at coming together as a collective and also in groups. And it's it's been interesting over the years to see where they've had impact. Like, for example, um, in Zimbabwe, which you know, they were very passionate about Zimbabwe. And you know, I remember they set up a press conference on the border of Zimbabwe and South Africa during the cholera epidemic um, because they weren't allowed into the country. And that moment was really important at helping lift the world's understanding of what was happening inside the country. Um, but there was also beautiful impact on the front line. Like I'll never forget going back into Zimbabwe like three years after that moment. And I was in a very rural area working with a group of women who were, had a sewing project. And, you know, one of them said, you know, Mary Robinson never forgot the Zimbabweans. And so they remember that someone believed and cared and, and loved them. And so I think the elders overall, you know, they've done a lot of work around um, working on ending nuclear threat, which is something obviously that, that's heightened in the world right now. Um, they have also done a lot with climate justice. Um, they've also done a lot at looking at our governance systems and working with the UN and the UN Security Council. And they've also done tons behind the scenes with governments that, um, that will never make the news, which it shouldn't, because they're there really working with leaders to help either stop conflict or help a conflict that's in process end. Um, so they do a lot of the behind the scenes work. And they also do a lot of things in pairs that they're deeply passionate about as well. But I think one of the most beautiful things for me um, in watching the elders is the friendships that they've had with one another and how that has helped them lift their impact and their work in the world. Now, alongside this, you founded Plus Wonder. Tell us about that. Yeah, so actually following on from the elders and working with the elders, I started to really observe how they became who they were in this world and how they had to create these outsized legacies of impact. And I really, through that, started to realize that they became who they were through the relationships and partnerships that they shaped around themselves. So I became fascinated with two questions. One was, how do we build and create and nurture deep connections in our own lives that make us the best version of ourselves? But then how do you take those deep connections and ladder them up into large scale collaborations, whether that's ending apartheid or helping protect the ozone layer? So out of that, I um, went on a journey, a 15-year journey now, to interview 65 of some of the world's greatest partnerships, some, some you'll know, some you won't know, which are just extraordinary human beings that had two things in common, um, longevity of their partnership, and they'd use their partnership to make a bigger difference in the world. And that's really what Plus Wonder is all about, which is a not-for-profit, because we wanted to do this philanthropically to get it out to the world and uh, really capture the lessons from these extraordinary partnerships. Mm. Now, one of the partnerships that probably won't be familiar to people is Azim Kamisa and Ples Felix. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, and they're an extraordinary partnership that was almost so unbelievable. I, I couldn't believe this partnership before I heard about it. And so I went to meet them and sat in, in the living room of Azim Kamisa in, in San Diego. And 
Azim Kamisa was a investment banker and a Muslim, and plus Felix was a Christian, is a Christian and is was a merchant marine. And the two really came together in a moment of tragedy because Azim's son Tarek, and this happened about 30 years ago now, who was 19 at the time, was a student and he was literally delivering pizzas to try to make money. And he went to deliver pizza and Plez's grandson, Tony Hicks, was in a gang and shot and killed Tarek as part of a gang prank. And you know, what could have happened in that moment is Azim could have gone into pure hatred, bitterness, and never, never spoken to Tony's family. But instead what he did is he invited Pless and his family into his living room in San Diego to start healing together. And even though they were radically different people, what's happened in the last 30 years is they have built the most incredible friendship where they call themselves brothers and talk about how this friendship has transcended anything that's even emotional or cognitive. It's gone into a spiritual space. And what they did with their friendship is they built this extraordinary foundation where they go into high schools in America to stop kids from killing kids. And so when these two extraordinary leaders stand on that stage, A, they're so radically different across political divides, across religious divides, what they were doing in the world. So the students can relate to both of them, but more importantly, understand that we can build these friendships across divides. And even if we don't agree on everything, we can agree to disagree and still work towards something bigger, which is what they do every day now. And you know, when Pless's grandson, Tony, got out of jail about three years ago, the first thing that Azim did is he hired him into the foundation. And it's just a beautiful story of friendship, but also of forgiveness. Mm. What are some of the other themes that run through all of these very successful partnerships that, that you outline? Yes, one of the beautiful things is when I first started this journey, I was literally going to do 10. It was focused on romantic partnerships. And then I interviewed Ben and Jerry. And I started to see some common patterns. And so then I started to interview business partnerships, friends, families, and romantic. And what was amazing is these beautiful patterns started to emerge from the interviews. And at first I just started to plaster them on my walls and then coded the wisdom with thousands of pages of transcripts. And what came out really clearly is these are these six degrees of connection. And it was these six degrees of connection that were common across the 65 partnerships. And they're almost like a compass for people to understand how they can build these deep connections in our lives. And so some of those six degrees, for example, one of the ones that was most prominent was this concept of something bigger. And it doesn't have to be a shared purpose. Sometimes it was individual purposes that they helped each other get to, or sometimes it was shared. Um, and also this concept of being all in. So not holding anything back, but always being there for one another. Um, and then a beautiful ecosystem of virtues. There were six, again, that were common within that. And the other three were really interesting because one of them that I hadn't really um, thought of too deeply before I started interviewing people was something called magnetic moments, which were these very thoughtful traditions, practices, rituals that people put into their relationships to stay connected. And then the fifth one was around how do you celebrate friction and turn it into something that makes you a better person is a learning moment rather than something that blows up your relationship. 
And the last one is really collective connections. So how do you take these deep connections and then ladder them up into collaborations, the type of collaborations we need to solve issues in our communities or in the world and working together at, at large scale. Mm. I want to pick up on that third degree, the ecosystem, the moral ecosystem, and the six essential virtues there, because they are enduring trust, unshakable mutual respect, united belief, shared humility, nurturing generosity, and compassionate empathy. And I mean, those are wonderful goals, but I imagine really quite difficult for all of us to keep to. Yeah, and that's something I should say right up front is that all of these partnerships talked about this being really hard work. None of them said that this was an easy process. But what they did say is that the other side of that was the thing that made their life meaningful were these partnerships, these deep connections, so that that hard work was worth it. And it's a constant evolving process. It's not something like, okay, we mastered these six virtues, so we're all done. It's something that you constantly learn as you evolve within your partnerships as well. And I think the interesting thing that I found is they all had really practical things about what kept them in that space, but they were also very kind to themselves. And, you know, like um, Derek, Derek and Beverly Jobert, who work with Big Cats in Africa, I'm sure you know, um, you know, they spoke a lot about, like we were talking about trust, and they were saying, it's okay to make a mistake and break trust. The most important thing is that you're honest and you have the conversation, and that helps you build that trust even deeper. Or like Sarah and Phil Kay, these amazing spoken poets, talked a lot about how you always have to come from a place of assuming good intentions when you're building trust and create the safe space to make sure you can have those conversations. And each of the six also linked together. So you can't just master one and expect it all to work. So trust and respect were very dependent on one another. And they were also dependent on things like shared generosity and humility. Um, so they were all interconnected to six as well. And, you know, one of the things that I love around the un unshakable respect one was that they all celebrated their differences and they called it this electric current of difference. And, you know, Richard Reed, the co-founder of Innocent Drinks, he spoke about it so beautifully because he called it Legos, not jigsaws. So you don't want to get someone in a partnership where everyone's exactly the same, um, that everyone agrees with everything. There's no spirit of discourse because then you're going to only build something that can never be higher than a puzzle. But if you get people that are different and you're building this extraordinary Lego structure with those differences, it can be something much, much bigger and much, much more audacious than you could ever do on your own. And it's respecting that difference that was really fundamental in the partnerships. Mm. I mean, because there are so many differences in the world today, but unfortunately what that seems to be doing is dividing us even further. What do you think's driving that? Yeah, I, I feel strongly that one of the world's most dangerous ideas is hyper-individualism. And I feel like we have pushed ourselves as human beings, particularly in America, but around the world, into this state of being so focused on having to win at all costs, having to be the one, like in, from the time we were in grade school to when we're in high school, to when we're in university, to when we're in our companies, that we have to be the one that wins the gold star. And we haven't really, when you look back on our lives, at least certainly in mine, and you know, at some, some points, yes, but many of the points we were pushed to be individual leaders, not to learn how to cooperate and collaborate. So I think that's one of the fundamental things that is pushing us to this world of fear and division. 
And you know, one of the beautiful things out of these interviews is that I interviewed lots of people that had opposing political parties. Um, like one that stands out in my mind constantly is Cornell West, who was very far left, social Democrat. And then Robert George, who was right on the right side, of, you know, one of the leading American Christian thinkers. And they have all kinds of opposing views. But what they spoke about is that they have such respect for each other and have built such a deep friendship that even if the other one says something that they disagree with, they realize how important it is for them to listen and really deeply listen and understand what they're saying because there must be some truth into why that other person is saying that. And they even talked about at times they're listening so deeply that people and so quietly and holding that space that people may think they're in an argument but what they're doing is really understanding the why of where the other person is coming from. Mm. You know, when they, when that interview ended, you know, they said to me, go find a friend that unsettles you. And I think we don't do enough of that in the world right now. We don't have enough people in our lives that think differently than we do. Mm. These values of collaboration over individualism and prioritizing people in the environment, how were those installed in you personally? Yeah, I mean, I, I have been very fortunate that I had um, incredible parents that had instilled those values in me from a young age. But to be honest, Georgina, when I, you know, I started in corporate America right out of university, and I'll never forget starting in this telecommunications company, and my first well-intentioned boss gave me two books. Uh, the first one was The Art of War, um, telling me the message that corporate America is like a battleground. I need to be ready. And then the second one was telling me that most women don't make it. And that was the joy of cooking. And you know, it just those two books epitomize how we are pushed towards, again, being that individual hero. And I think I, over that time, I, I spent about 18, 20 years working in corporate America. And I was so focused on goals that, you know, I woke up one day and I realized, my gosh, uh, you know, I've, yes, I've smashed lots of glass ceilings, but I was feeling less and less myself. And I was also feeling more and more disconnected from others. Um, and so I would say that, you know, 17 years ago when I had the chance to work with the elders, that kind of cloak of hyper-individualism was pulled back. And I was able then to see the value and the beauty in cooperation and collaboration at a really deep level and building these connections at a level that I hadn't even begun to imagine yet. Mm. So, I mean, that's that sixth degree, that collective connections. How does one go about expanding small partnerships into large scale collaborations? Yeah, and I think that, you know, one of the groups that I learned the most about from this, uh, well, there's two groups. One was we building the elders, the B team, et cetera. All of them had these extraordinary friendships at the center when we built them. Um, but one of the ones I learned the most from this was the community that actually discovered and then helped protect the ozone layer. And it really started with two friends that were scientists in California that discovered that there was an issue with CFCs. But the beautiful thing about that is over the years, their deep set of values and friendships sparked many, many more. And you know, if you look at how the Montreal Protocol was actually built, there was a few key friendships at the center, like Mustafa Tolba, for example, who was one of the key architects of the Montreal Protocol. He had something that he used to call start and strengthen. So he used to get a few countries in the room. He used to say to them, take off your cloak of authority. 
I just want to talk to you about what's stopping you from moving forward as a country. So I want you to take that off and I want to have an honest conversation. So they would all go back and forth talking about what, you know, what their issues were, what the potential solutions were, and then they would put their cloaks of authority back on. But when they went back to the negotiating table, they had solutions rather than problems. Mm. So they had all these beautiful things like start and strengthen. They had this beautiful concept around an open tent, around bringing unlikely voices into that tent. But they were also careful if there was people that were starting to try to undermine it and weren't trying to work on the common collective good of perhaps not allowing them to stay in the tent to continue that undermining. And then they they built this incredible, this the ozone community, one of the things that was amazing in talking to all these people was this deep, deep sense of friendship. And you know, this they told me multiple times, you know, we are in service, not in control. And still, 30 years later, you have people like um, Steven Anderson, who is the one that helped companies, industry by industry, move into new solutions to replace CFCs. He's still working in climate change, and he still has this unbelievable sense of connection to that community that helped to protect the ozone layer. So I think there's lots of tips. And in the, in the book, we have about um, six different ideas, tips of how not just the community of protecting the ozone hole, but also the community who ended smallpox in India, the group that also ended apartheid in South Africa, how they went about building these collaborations. So it's very much a guide of how to achieve this for yourself too. That was one of the things we wanted to do because again, I think we've been trained so much the opposite um, of, of collaboration and partnering that we wanted to do something that was going to be very practical, but also inspirational with the stories from the partnerships, but very practical on how we build these deep connections in our own lives. And then also very practical at how we ladder them up to become collaborations. And I, I feel right now in the world, we talk a lot about the problems and the issues and we know in our hearts that the only way we're going to solve these interconnected issues is through radical collaboration. Again, at a scale we can't even begin to imagine, but we don't talk a lot about the solutions. And I wanted this book to be part of the solution. I wanted it to give us the how-to we build these deep connections, and then also the how-to framing of how these extraordinary individuals have built these large-scale collaborations. Mm. And finally, Jean, which of your own relationships have, have helped you find your purpose? Yeah, and I, I should say that this this process of 15 years of exploration has changed me as an individual completely. And it allowed me to open up my heart to my incredible husband, who's been, you know, I've been with him now for 10 years, who's been an extraordinary partner in my life and helped me become a much better human being. Uh, and, you know, the other partnerships in my life that have been transformational. Obviously, I've had the wonderful chance to work with Richard Branson for the last 22 years. And he has taught me how to be a big, audacious thinker. I mean, I will never be as big and audacious ever at any scale that he will be. But he's allowed me to have belief that things are possible. And I think we've been a really good partnership because he's completely visionary and audacious. And, you know, I'm more practical and I can help him make things happen. And so it's been a, a beautiful partnership of just uh, an opportunity to create, help him create some of these big audacious ideas. And some incredible inspiring female leaders like Jane Tucson, who started Comic Relief, who's just one of the most incredible women I've ever met. And she's been such a good role model to me about strong, powerful women, but also, 
a deep sense of humility and generosity and and also purpose in the world. Mm. Jean, thank you so much for talking to us. The, the book is called Partnering, Forge the Deep Connections That Make Great Things Happen. It's by Jean Olwang and it's published by Ibri. It's out now. It's been an absolute delight to catch up with you, Jean. Thank you, Georgina, and thanks again for all you do in the world. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Lillian Fawcett. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.